Let's begin with prayer. Dear Father, our theme this morning is one that many people prefer not to think about or even acknowledge. But Your Word makes it clear that it applies to every man who has ever lived or who ever will live. We ask that You would make the change in every heart that this truth demands. And we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Judgment Day. Those are words you don't normally hear along with raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens. They're not on anyone's favorite things list, but the inevitable accounting that all men, women, and children will make to God for how they have lived is a huge theme in Scripture from beginning to end. Anyone who attempts to sweep Judgment Day under the rug does so to his own everlasting peril. Hebrews 9, verses 26-28 to 28 says, But now once at the consummation of the ages, He, Christ, has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time without reference for salvation, without reference to sin, to those who eagerly await Him. The writer of Hebrews is explaining why the perfect once-for-all-time sacrifice of Jesus was necessary. It was necessary because men die once, and after death comes judgment. Nobody is exempt. There may be second chances while we're here and we're still breathing, but when the last breath comes, there is no additional chance to make things right. Judgment comes after death. If reincarnation were legitimate, then the Bible would be a lie and Jesus would be a fake. But reincarnation is nothing more than a very convenient dodge. A contrivance of men that distracts from the truth. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. All men are going to be judged according to one standard. Only one standard. And that standard is the standard of God's own holiness. In Leviticus 19.2, God said to Israel, You shall be holy, for the Lord your God is holy. See, there's no uh, sliding scale. There's no extra credit. There's no grading on the curve. And because we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, every man fails to meet that standard. The inevitability of judgment for all men is precisely why Jesus Christ came down from heaven 
took on manhood, lived a sinless life that perfectly met God's standard of holiness, died in our place, and was raised from the dead. He came to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Just as the writer of Hebrews says. For all who trust in Him alone, and who therefore eagerly await His return, His second coming will be without reference to sin. Those of us who believe in Him will not bear the penalty for our sin because Christ already took it upon Himself at the cross. But all those who reject Him or ignore Him or redefine Him so that He is not the Christ of the Bible will stand before His throne of judgment with absolutely no defense for their sin. There are two resurrections mentioned in Revelation chapter 20. You're going to be part of one of them or the other. All of those who are part of the first resurrection, the resurrection unto life, are going to live with Christ forever in the new heavens and the new earth that we've been talking about for all these weeks. Revelation 20 verse 6 says, over these, these who have a part in the first resurrection, the second death has no power. And just a few verses later, we find out that the second death is hell. After a period of time that Revelation 20 describes as a thousand years, in which Christ will rule over the earth together with those who were raised in that first resurrection, there's going to be a second resurrection. All of those, all of those who are part of the second resurrection are going to be raised up from the dead from a place called death and Hades, which is the temporary and very unpleasant abode of those who have died without believing in Christ. All of those people who are part of the second resurrection will stand before what is called the great white throne of Jesus Christ. They will all be judged from the things that are found written in books that record the deeds of every man. All of them will fail God's standard because their deeds will condemn them. Then another book will be opened called the Book of Life, which contains the names of everyone whose sins are covered by the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. None of the names of the people standing before Christ in that great white throne judgment will be found in the book of life. Everyone standing before Him that day will be cast into the lake of fire. Verse 14 says, this is the second death. The lake of fire. The same chapter describes that place as the place of torment day and night forever. That judgment, that outcome, is the default destiny of all mankind. The popular belief that, that we're all born good and that we're all headed to heaven unless we do something terrible 
is false from, from every angle. We start out life in the sin of Adam. We are all sinners headed to hell unless God does something to rescue us from that inevitable destiny. His rescue, the only rescue, is Jesus Christ. Romans 5 says we are all helplessly ungodly. It says we are all sinners and enemies of God. Ephesians chapter 2 says that we are all dead in our sins, destined to the wrath of God until and unless we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Now you can decide that you don't believe in gravity, but if you jump off a tall building in that, in that, res, that resolved denial of gravity, you will plummet toward your death at 32 feet per second and you'll go 32 feet per second faster every second and you will, you will gain maximum velocity just before you're dead as a doornail. You can believe that fire won't harm you, but when a raging fire finally takes, comes to the place where you're standing, it will consume you. It doesn't matter what you decide to believe. It matters what's true. And make no mistake, our God is a consuming fire. He declared in Exodus 34 that even though He is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, He will by no means leave sin unpunished. Either you will bear the punishment for your sins or Christ will bear it in your place. Those are the only two possibilities. If you bear it, you will bear it forever in the lake of fire. Anyone who soft pedals that clear declaration of God is lying to you. And contrary to popular belief, it is not loving to lie to people about hell. In fact, the single most unloving thing that any person can ever do is convince another person that they do not have the need for a Savior. No man is exempt from the coming judgment and the one judge of all mankind is Jesus Christ. John 5, verses 22 and 23 says, Jesus says, For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son in order that all may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. So, God the Father has handed over the entire matter of judgment to God the Son. Keep that in mind as we proceed. It will be important. Now, what is the judgment seat of Christ? There are two passages in Paul's letters in which he refers to the judgment seat. Romans 14, he calls it the judgment seat of God. 2 Corinthians 5, he calls it the judgment seat of Christ. Since God the Father has given all judgment into the hands of God the Son, I take both of those to be talking about the same judgment seat. 
The Greek word that's translated judgment seat in both of those passages, the word bema. Many of you have heard of the bema, or some people pronounce it bema seat, judgment of Christ, right? 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, I've heard many very reputable and very good and diligent preachers over the years say that no one is going to be punished at the Bema Seat of Christ. That that judgment applies only to Christians and it is only for the dispensing of rewards. And they typically support that understanding by pointing to uses of the word, the Greek word Bema that occur outside the Bible, most notably in reference to the judgment seat from which the Olympic judge handed out medals in the, in the Greek Olympics. The Olympics have been around for a very long time, by the way. That judge awarded prizes of differing values to the top competitors based on how they placed at the end of a competition. Much the same way that rewards are handed out in the Olympics now. now that's a lovely picture that certainly eliminates most of the the, the fear factor that we typically associate with the word judgment. But there's a problem with imposing that Olympics imagery from outside the Bible on the things that the Bible says about the judgment seat of Christ. And the reason that there's a problem is the simple fact that the word Bema is never used that way in the New Testament. Paul had first-hand experience with the kind of judgment seat to which he refers in Romans 14 and 2 Corinthians 5. During his time in the city of Corinth, the Jews rose up against Paul and brought him to the Bema, the judgment seat of a Roman official named Gallio. That event is recorded in Acts 18. Gallio possessed the authority either to release Paul or to sentence him to a punishment. On that particular occasion, Gallio heard the, the arguments of the Jews and concluded that they were accusing Paul of stuff that really didn't have anything to do with Roman law. It was all about Jewish tradition. And so he, he wasn't going to have anything to do with it. And he released Paul. Later in Acts 25, Paul stood before the judgment seat, the Bema, of another more highly placed Roman official named Festus. As Paul stood before Festus, the Jews brought many and serious charges against him, which incidentally they could not prove. Clearly, those Jews didn't press for that court proceeding so they could watch Paul receive rewards. As a Roman citizen, Paul appealed his case to Caesar, so Festus passed the case up the food chain and sent Paul in chains to Rome to stand trial. In Matthew 27.19, the judgment seat of another Roman official named Pontius Pilate is referred to using the exact same word, Bema. Nobody would argue that Pilate occupied that seat only to distribute rewards. It was from that judgment seat that Pilate issued the decree for Barabbas the murderer to be released and on the same day issued the decree for Jesus the Son of God to be crucified. 
those constitute all of the New Testament uses of the word bema in regard to judgment other than the two that speak of the judgment seat of Christ. We should not impose some other understanding of the word on those two texts unless there's very clear evidence that they demand that distinction. So what's going on with the bema, with the judgment seat of Christ? In Romans 14, Paul is exhorting believers not to judge one another for things like which foods one person chooses to eat or which days a person chooses to observe as holy. We are not to judge one another in matters that God doesn't explicitly require or forbid, but are to trust the Holy Spirit to guide each man's conscience. That's what that passage is about. We are to leave the judging to God. But how does Paul explain and support that declaration? He, he goes to an Old Testament passage. He says, first he says, for we shall all stand before the Bema of God, the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue will give praise to God. You know where that comes from? Isaiah 45. He then says, so then each one of us will give account of himself to God. Paul is making a point to believers. That's not in question. To the saints in Rome. But he's making it by referring to a coming judgment at which every knee will bow before God. And the verse that he cites from Isaiah 45 is from a passage in which God commands all the ends of the earth, including idol worshipers, to turn to Him who is both righteous God, that means judge, and the only Savior, to turn to Him and be saved. Because the day is coming when, like it or not, every knee will bow to God. That judgment applies to everyone. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul declares that we who belong to Christ prefer to be absent from the body and at home with the Lord. And then he says, but we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. And the very next thing he says in verse 10 is, for we must all appear before the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And the very next thing he says after that, therefore, knowing the fear of God, we persuade men. We persuade men of what? Well, if you keep reading, he says we persuade men that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were entreating through us. We beg men on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. And then he says, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Why this urgent appeal to be reconciled to God? Because the judgment seat of Christ is coming. 
Either you will bear your own sin at that judgment or Christ will bear your sin in your place. Those are the only two options. I believe that when Paul speaks of the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ, he's not making a distinction between Christians and non-Christians. He's saying we all, meaning all mankind, will give account to Christ for the things that we have done. Those who were judged on their own merits will all be condemned. Those who belong to Christ will not be judged for their sin because Christ was already judged in our place. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. We who believe that message of reconciliation will be rescued from the judgment that punishes sin for eternity. This doesn't mean that we who believe in Christ will not answer to God for how we have lived. It means that Jesus Christ already answered to God for our sins. Our eternal destiny was determined by Christ's deeds, not by ours. It was determined by His perfect life and His perfect sacrifice in our place. That judgment has already happened. That is consistent with what Jesus says in John 5 regarding the two and only two possible outcomes of the resurrection, which is also consistent with what Revelation 20 says. Right after Jesus declares that God the Father has appointed Him to be the one and only judge of all mankind, He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears My words my word, and believes Him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has already passed out of death into life. When it comes to the judgment that determines whether a man is destined to eternal life or eternal death, we who believe in Christ won't face that judgment. That judgment's already done. We already have eternal life. That judgment fell on Christ. Verse 28, Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs, all dead people, will hear His voice and shall come forth. Those who did good things to a resurrection of life and those who committed evil things to a resurrection of judgment. Now someone might say, okay, look, right there, Jesus says we're going to be saved or condemned based on our works. No, He doesn't. You have to read what He said just before and you have to read what He says just after. He just got through saying that whoever believes the testimony of His Father concerning Him has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is already passed out of death into life. So when he then says those who did the good will be resurrected unto life, what good is he talking about? He's already given us a big hint, but stick with me for a minute. He's going to answer that question very directly. He proceeds next to point to the many witnesses that God has provided to confirm to all men that He, Jesus, is exactly who He claimed to be. And when he gets to the witness of the Scriptures, he says mostly to these Pharisees, he says, 
you do not have His Word abiding in you, for you do not believe Him whom He sent. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is these that bear witness of Me. Yet you are unwilling to come to Me that you may have life. So what good must men do to have the resurrection unto life instead of the resurrection unto judgment? Come to Christ in faith. They must believe in Jesus Christ. And in case there's any doubt, you keep reading a little further. In chapter 6, the multitude of people who had just benefited from our Lord's miraculous feeding of 5,000 tracked Him down on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which, by the way, He had just crossed on foot. (laughs) And by the time they finally got to where Jesus was, they were hungry again. And they were certainly hoping for a sequel to the whole mass feeding thing. But Jesus didn't feed them the way He had before. In fact, He rebuked them. He rebuked them because they were working for the food which perishes. He told them instead to work for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you. So they then immediately said, okay, okay, Lord, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? In other words, What are these good works that God requires us to do so we can have this eternal life that you were just talking about? And what was Jesus' answer? Jesus answered and said to them, John 6.29, This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. By the way, I consider that to be a brilliant double entendre, a double meaning. Not only is Jesus saying, this is the work that God requires, He's saying this is the work that God does. This is God's work that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Now in that context, looking at what came before and what came after, What is the good that men must do that results in the resurrection unto life instead of the resurrection unto judgment? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And on the other side of that equation, what is the evil that you must do to be destined to eternal judgment? And the answer is, you've already done it. You already stand condemned until you come to Christ in faith. John 3, verse 18, Jesus said, He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. That's the default. He has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He has not believed in the only rescue. He has not believed in the only Savior that God has provided for men. It doesn't get any more straightforward than that. All of what we've seen thus far tells us that there is only one provision to rescue men from eternal condemnation, and that provision is the perfect blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. What will wash away my sin and yours? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. 
But what does the Bible say about a believer's accountability to God for how he has lived or she has lived? What kind of judgment do those of us who trust in Jesus Christ face after we die? Well, there's some things that the Bible declares very forcefully about that. First, we need to know that we will not be condemned. In Romans 7, Paul is talking about the battle between the flesh and the Spirit that is common to all, to every believer this side of glory. Romans 7, verse 24, he says, Wretched man that I am! Who will set me free from the body of this death? And then he gives the answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He says, so then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. And then verse chapter 8, verse 1, marvelous statement. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. <laughs> for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. There is no possibility of condemnation for us who have trusted in Jesus Christ. None at all. The accounting that we will make to Christ for how we have lived is also not cause for us to be afraid of punishment. We will not be condemned and when we stand in the presence of Jesus Christ that is coming, we will not be punished. Christ's judgment of His own children for the things that we've done in this life will undoubtedly be quite humbling. But it will not involve punishment. And if you have trouble understanding how both of those could be true, bear with me for a minute. The punishment or chastisement that we receive from God happens now, not later. And that punishment is a gracious work of discipline that's designed to make us holy not to destroy us. Read Hebrews chapter 12 sometime. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul speaks of painful judgment that came upon some of the Corinthians, believers, from the hand of God because they trivialized the observance of the Lord's Supper, treating it as an opportunity to get drunk and stuff their stomachs instead of treating it as a sacred remembrance of Christ. And God took that very seriously. Paul says, For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. That means some are dead. And then he says, But if we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. In 1 John chapter 4, John is speaking to everyone, everyone who confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. In other words, he's talking to all believers. He makes it clear that we have no cause to fear punishment in the day of judgment. Instead, he says we have great cause for confidence. Listen to this, 1 John 4 verse 13 and following. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, whoever confesses 
that Jesus is the Son of God. God abides in Him and He in God. And we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. What a statement. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. By this, God abiding in us and us in Him, by this, love is perfected with us. That we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. And He says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from Him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Verse 16 says, we have come to know and have believed the love that God has for us. That changes everything. The knowledge of that love gives us confidence in the day of judgment. If you belong to Christ, you are eternally the object of God's love. You love Him and you love His people because He first loved you. God did not make us the objects of His love so that we would spend our lives here in fear of punishment on the last day. There is no condemnation for us who believe in Jesus Christ and there is no fear of punishment on the day of judgment. But we need to know that our works will be tested. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul rakes the Corinthian believers over the coals because of all the pride-based divisions that exist among them. He says to them that he can't even speak to them as to spiritual men, but he has to talk to them like as if they are babies in Christ. He says they're like mere men, which means they don't look much different than unbelievers. And then, Paul says that he, Paul, laid a foundation and others are building on it. That foundation is Christ. Some build upon that foundation with gold, silver, and precious gems. And others build upon that same foundation with hay, wood, and straw. And he says the day is coming when each man's work will become evident. Each man's work will be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. He's talking to believers. And he says if any man's work which he has built upon that foundation of Christ remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work burns up, he shall suffer loss but he himself shall be saved, yet so is through fire. It's no small point that that passage is talking about our accountability to God to build good things into the lives of other people. It's talking about what we do now to build up His church. 
whether it's Paul or Apollos or Peter or you or me, there's one foundation, and that foundation is Christ. That is the foundation of the life of every saint and of the life of the church. What are you building on that foundation? Things that will burn away or things that will abide into eternity. That matters to God and it should matter to you. You will give account to God for what you build on that one foundation. That test that's coming is not going to be about our eternal destiny. As we've said, that's already settled. But any notion, any notion that it doesn't matter how we live now because we have a free ticket to heaven is foolishness and it's a, it's a gross insult to the one who has sent his son to take our place in punishment and in judgment. Some faithful believers will find that their entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is going to be abundantly supplied. 2 Peter 1.11 For other believers, that same entrance will not be quite so abundant. God is not going to reward all believers the way soccer coaches these days reward their teams. He's not going to give a ribbon to everyone who participated and everyone who sat on the bench. Some among us will receive greater rewards than others. The parable of the talents in Matthew 5 seems to me to indicate that some of us will be given greater responsibility in heaven in eternity than others. But this I can assure you, when we stand before Jesus Christ and He hands out rewards, our concern will not be for us. Our concern will not be about our status in His kingdom. And we won't be arguing with Jesus about whatever level of honor or responsibility we have in eternity by His decree. We will all rejoice to see His name honored. And that includes the honor that He's going to receive by rewarding us differently based on how we have lived here. See, it's the sins of pride and envy and jealousy that cause us to lament and agonize over our status in life and over our station in life now. And those sins won't exist in His presence. We won't have that problem. If I must decrease as I surely must in order that He might increase, I'm going to be perfectly fine with that when I stand in His presence. I should be perfectly fine with it now. 1 Peter 1, verses 17-19 to says, As obedient children, so he's talking to believers, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. And if you address as Father the One who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Knowing that, 
knowing that you were redeemed not with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with precious blood, blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Do you know what I fear about coming into the presence of Christ? Just one thing. I don't fear that God will somehow withhold His amazing grace from me on that day. That's not going to happen. I don't fear that I will be disappointed with how He assesses my life. I won't have a problem with that. I do not fear for my sake. I fear anything that I have done that has hurt the one who has loved me perfectly when I deserved only condemnation. That's what I fear. I fear anything that violates His love for me and for us. Anything that diminishes even a little bit the incredible and comparable value of His precious blood by which we have been redeemed. Blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless. The blood of Christ. Does that in any way mean that I won't love His appearing? Of course not. There is nothing that I long for more than the, than the, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Nothing. There's nothing I long for more than His return to claim His bride. How does this change us as believers now? All of this about judgment. Here's where it gets really, really important. So if I've lost you at any point, please sit up in your seat, slap yourself a couple of times in the cheek. This is important. What is it about the judgment that awaits unbelievers and the judgment that awaits believers, and those are not the same, that should get your attention and change your behavior while you're here? You might not expect this answer, but it's the love of God. It is the love of God that will make the knowledge of both of those judgments light a raging fire in your heart. Both for Him and for people. 1 John 4.16 that I read a few minutes ago is pure dynamite. It says, we have come to know and have believed the love that God has for us. Do you know what it is that frees a child of God from living in fear of punishment on the day of judgment? It's simple. Knowing and believing the love that God has for us. Do you know what perfects His love in us so that it overflows toward other people and builds gold, silver, and precious gems into their lives? Knowing and believing the love that God has for us. Do you know and trust the love that God has for you? If you do, there's your motivation for godliness. Hear me on this. Fear of punishment as a motivation for good behavior is the motivation of very young children who still act purely out of self-interest. 
It is neither worthy of God nor is it sustainable. It goes up like flash paper. Knowing and believing the love that God has for you is a life-changing, all-consuming fire that makes loving God and loving people a no-brainer. Let me share a a story, a personal story from my distant past with you that's very humbling. I was reluctant to share it because it's it's a lousy example, especially for young people. But I was urged by some brothers and sisters that I trust very much to go ahead and share it with you. Because it was a powerful lesson for me about this very thing. About what moves us to real, sticky, abiding change toward obedience. In the year leading up to my salvation, when I was 16 years old, I started smoking pot, marijuana. Back in the days when Bud was just the name of a beer. Just in case anyone thinks that somehow that uh, adds to my cool factor, it does not. It merely proves my stupid factor. It did nobody any good, least of all me. When I came to faith in Jesus Christ, not long before my 17th birthday, a lot of things changed in my life very quickly. But I did not immediately stop smoking weed. Then one day, my dear mother was putting socks in my drawer in my dresser. And I should know my mother is a perfectionist and she doesn't just put socks in a drawer, she rearranges them. And she found a bag of the stuff in my dresser drawer and she wasn't even looking for it. Tells you how good I am at hiding things. She got my dad and the two of them came and they confronted me. They were convinced that I was hiding it for some friend. See, I was the good kid. Except that I wasn't. The only good in me then and the only good in me now is Christ. And I was just getting to know Christ. I was very new in that relationship and I was very, very new to digging into His Word. I didn't take the easy out of agreeing with them that, uh, that, that it belonged to one of my friends. I couldn't do that. When I told them that it was mine, I'll never forget the look on their faces. They stood there for what seemed like an eternity to me. <laughs> And then my dad put his hand on my mom's shoulder and they walked out of the room. And they didn't say another word. And they never said another word. I knew that I'd hurt them. I knew that I had really, really hurt them. I I kept smoking pot for just a little while longer after that. Don't even know why. But I could not shake the awareness that I had grievously hurt the two people who loved me the most relentlessly and the most faithfully and who still loved me. 
See, it was not the fear of arrest or the fear of punishment that cured me of smoking pot. It was their unrelenting love. I knew and I trusted the love that my parents had for me. And I knew that I had violated that love. And that awareness pierced my heart and changed my heart forever. I quit smoking pot. I went to my mom and my dad and I told them why I quit and I never touched it again in my life. And that lesson became a pervasive transformation in my life once I understood more of the love that God has for me and for us. God loves us with the only perfect love that exists in the universe. And He proved that by sending His own beloved Son to suffer and die and pour out His life's blood to purchase us for Himself. He has freed us from the fear of death. He has freed us from the fear of judgment. He has made us His children, fellow heirs, with Jesus Christ. He has made Himself our treasure forever. And He has made us His treasure forever. We have come to know and have believed the love that God has for us. And that changes everything. I certainly still sin just as you do. I still struggle against the pull of the, of the old habit of sin, the flesh, just as you do. But there is a constant and compelling awareness in my life that the only life that makes any sense at all is to do the things that please the shepherd and guardian and lover of my soul. Nothing else makes sense. See, sin is insanity. That is a motivation that sticks. It messes with us in marvelous ways. A while back, I'm just about done, but let me tell you this. A a while back, I let a, a phone call go to voicemail when I was watching a TV show. I don't remember what the show was, of course. but I remember who the caller was. It was a dear brother that I knew was going through something tough at that point. And I know that no TV show was worthy of delaying that conversation even one second. I got back to that brother pretty soon after that. But the Holy Spirit took that opportunity to mess with me some based on this principle. As I've been studying and pondering this theme of judgment over the past couple of weeks and of what God has done to free us from the penalty for our sins, I thought hard about that incident. And God reminded me of a conversation that the resurrected Christ had with the Apostle Peter. It's the last conversation on the last page of the Gospel of John. Simon, son of John, Do you love me? 
Yes, Lord, You know that I love You. Tend My lambs. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, You know all things. Surely You know that I love You. Jesus said to him, Tend My sheep. Then Jesus told Peter that He would die a martyr's death for the glory of God. And He said to him, Follow Me. Brothers and sisters, our love for God and for men is but a response to God's love for us. It is the only reasonable response for us who have come to know and to trust the love that God has for us. The love that He proved when Jesus died on the cross cross in our place. A love that surpasses knowledge. A love that compels us to willingly and joyfully lay down our lives for Him in order that others may come to have and to know that same love. Dear Father, the blood that gives us the only right anyone will ever have to live in Your glorious city, in Your glorious presence forever, is the blood of Jesus Christ that washes away every stain of sin and makes us spotless and blameless in Your presence. That perfect sacrifice is all the proof we will ever need to know and believe the incomparable, unfathomable love that You have for us. Make our lives and our proclamation to one another and to this world a constant testament to Your perfect love. Lord, we ask this in the name of the One who is our treasure, the One who is our life, the One who has freed us and made us His, the Lord, the Savior, Jesus Christ.